Welcome to Menno HealthCast, a production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship in partnership with the Mennonite Incorporated. Please check out these great organizations at mennohealth.org and themennonite.org. We need people like you to financially support the mission of the Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship to help continue the conversation about faith, service, peace, and justice in the context of healthcare. If you're interested in getting involved with the Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship, please go to our website and click on the link in the top right corner or email us at info at menohealth.org. This is the third episode in our podcast series, Menos in Medicine. I'm your host, Joanne Huntsberger, a pediatric anesthesiologist in Baltimore, Maryland. Again today, I am at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, where I will speak with Dr. David Sack, who is a professor in the Department of International Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Well, it is a pleasure to meet with you today. I understand that just a few days ago, you returned from an overseas trip. Can you tell me about that? Well, it was a uh, a whirlwind trip. Unfortunately, these are the kinds of trips I tend to make. Um, in two weeks, I was able to visit, uh, I guess, four sites in, uh, in three countries in Africa, starting out with a stay in Dar es Salaam for two days, and then Moshi, uh, Tanzania, another two days. Uh, I was able to visit my daughter, who lives in Arusha, uh, and then a day in Nairobi, and then finally four days in Bujumbura, Burundi. Uh, so all these were stops um, uh, having to do with projects on cholera and the use of cholera vaccine. Uh, fortunately, on the way home, I was uh, stopped at a meeting in France uh, for the global the global task force on cholera control. Uh, so that was a, a more academic meeting, uh, but the others were were very enjoyable meeting with uh, colleagues uh, who are working in these countries. What are your current projects in these locations? Yeah. Uh, in general, they are all to enhance or the effective use of cholera vaccine. This is an oral vaccine that is relatively new. It's only been introduced uh, into public health use since about 2012, and really only in, in widespread use since about 2014. So it's pretty new. Um, when we talk about vaccine for cholera, uh, the officials often think of the old vaccine that was an injectable one that didn't work very well and caused a lot of side effects. This is a new oral vaccine with no side effects, and it's pretty simple to give. And um, now the problem is that people don't know about it well enough, and there's not enough vaccine to go around. So we're, we're trying to identify how best to use it in the, in the areas that are highest risk. Why is there not enough of the vaccine to go around? Uh, it's being manufactured in two places, uh, one in India uh, and another in Korea, uh, but they just don't have the facilities to, to make enough. They can make about a total of about 25 million doses per year, but um, there's just a lot more people who need it. 25 million per year. Okay. If you ideally could get as many doses of vaccine as you wanted per year, what would that number be? Oh, 100 million. 
100 million. Yeah, so four yeah. times of what you're currently right. able to produce. Right. So that's actually one, uh, uh, in addition to using the vaccine that we have, we are working on seeing if we can't get a, a vaccine that would essentially be the same as this, but could be made in much higher volumes and at a cheaper price. Mm-hmm. Are you looking at other manufacturing sites for the vaccine? Uh, I'm personally not, but certainly that is that would be a goal, yeah, to get other manufacturers involved. So what is your role between getting the vaccine to to the people. That's what mm-hmm. I hear is your role, and that's what you're working on. Right. And then how do you interact with the manufacturer or the developer yeah. of the vaccine? Yeah. The The process for determining how to how to distribute vaccine is, is not too complex, but a country, say like Tanzania or Kenya, where we were, or now Burundi, uh, it has cholera every year, but it doesn't have it everywhere. It has it only in a few hotspot areas. And so the first point is to see, can you identify these hotspots? This is where we bring in people who have expertise in geographic information systems and, and the, you know, looking the data from surveillance to identify those hotspots. And then help the countries apply for the vaccine. And that, that application goes to this global task force for cholera uh, based in Geneva, and uh, and if it, if that application is approved, then they are the vaccine is provided through Gavi, this is the Global Vaccine Alliance. So um, it's it is there is a, a, a process, uh, but right now there's more applications than vaccine. But at least still we have to identify you know, where these hotspot areas are in order to use the vaccine in the most appropriate uh, way. Currently, is that identification a reactive process where, wherein you see that an endemic is developing and then you're getting the vaccine there, or can we proactively get the vaccine to these areas? Yeah, actually, you bring up a good point. There's actually three sort of channels for getting vaccine. One is if there's an outbreak and it looks like it may be a bad one, you can apply for an emergency use of vaccine. Um, that was, uh, for example, in Nigeria in at the end of 2017 in some uh, refugee and displaced uh, population camps, there was a major outbreak, and vaccine was used there to try to you know stop that outbreak. The second way would be in a humanitarian disaster even though they might not have an outbreak, they are at high risk. So an example there was in Bangladesh. I'm sure you were the Rohingya refugees that came into Bangladesh. So I think like eight or 900,000 people were vaccinated there very quickly. And there's been no cholera, so that's a success. And the third way is to identify these hotspots. And those... Ten, those are areas that have repeatedly had outbreaks in the past, but it's not urgent this minute. So there, there can be some time to analyze and, and analyze to see where this vaccine can be used. Many of us here in the United States have never seen cholera. We've never seen an affected person with cholera. Can you tell me what that person looks like? Oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> 
This is a, uh, a story I best uh, use the analogy of Lazarus. Um, this is a patient who has severe vomiting and diarrhea. The diarrhea is so bad you can't imagine. It's just water. And people lose so much fluid so quickly. They become dehydrated. They go into shock. And within a matter of hours, they die. Uh, unless they are able to reach a treatment center where they get uh, uh, the the fluids. Sometimes they can be treated with oral fluids, but sometimes it's IVs are, are required. And when they get that treatment, um, they may have arrived at a center with no pulse, no blood pressure. They're in a coma, and within half an hour, they're sitting up and eating a meal. So that's why I, I call it uh, like a Lazarus story. And in, uh, I, we worked in, uh, our family moved to Bangladesh uh, several years ago. In fact, we've been there three different times uh, working there. The hospital in Dhaka treats uh, over 100,000 patients a year with severe diarrhea. About about twenty to 30,000 patients a year come to that hospital uh, in severe, you know, dehydration. And nobody dies. They're... They're sitting up, you know, they're, they're, they're treated well. Nobody pays. So it is, it's an amazing story. They probably saved more lives at that one hospital than at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Does the effective treatment make it less likely that patients will be willing to take the vaccine? I think people are pretty scared of cholera. You know, when we, we've been in programs where they have introduced the vaccine, and people desire it. They see, you know, they don't. They know what the problem is with cholera, and they see this vaccine, which is, uh, you know, just a few drops in the mouth, and the coverage rates are over ninety percent. So it's it's not been difficult to convince people to take it. Most of the vaccines that we get here in the States that we give to our children, almost all of them are shots. Yeah. Do you think there's something easier about taking an oral vaccine or, or does it seem less harmful to the patients because it's oral rather than coming in yeah. a shot? I, you know, I th- certainly it's easier to give the oral vaccine. And, you know, this is just, it's literally one and a half milliliters. It's less than a teaspoon of, of uh, liquid that they drink. It doesn't taste very good. But uh, I think if this were a shot, yeah, they would take it. But then uh, a shot requires, you know, the sterile needles. Uh, you have to figure out what to do with the needles when you're done with them. So logistically, it's, uh, it's, it's more complicated with the injection. And this, you know, being oral is very simple. Uh, I, I wish I could show you, but on the radio or in the podcast, it's pretty hard to... Now, you were part of the development of this vaccine. Right. Here right. at Hopkins? Uh, well, here at Hopkins, I was with Hopkins even when I was working in Bangladesh. A lot of this came out of the work that we did in Bangladesh, and I guess there's another lesson. This started back in the late 70s, 1970s. Uh, the pivotal trial of this vaccine was in 1985. So I helped to develop the concept for that vaccine and then uh, helped to carry out the this uh, large trial in Bangladesh, which involved, gosh, more than 90,000 people. 
So did you start with the oral vaccine? Was there already the injectable available at that time? At that time, the, the injectable was available, and um, this was in the old days when you, if you're traveling to a developing country, you would have to, you're required to have the cholera shot. Uh, and it took effort to, to uh, remove that requirement because it was not useful. But that was, it was in place for many, many years. Just, you know, now we have a requirement for yellow fever. In the old days, you used to have a yellow requirement for yellow fever, smallpox, and cholera. And of course, we don't have smallpox anymore, thank goodness. And, uh, and cholera is not required, but we still have a requirement for yellow fever for certain travel. Why was the cholera vaccine not really required for travel? Um, well, it, originally they thought that it would prevent the international spread. Uh, it turned out that that's not true. Uh, and it didn't really work that well. The old vaccine didn't work very well. Uh, so finally, when that was understood, then that requirement was no longer valid. Now, tell me about the Dove Project. Yeah, the, the Dove Project was a, a project uh, funded by the Gates Foundation. And this was to, to um, accelerate the effective use of the vaccine where it was appropriate. Um, so this started back in 2012. This was before any, any, any country had actually used vaccine. So we knew about the vaccine, but um, the ministries of health and you know, developing countries just had no knowledge, no familiarity with it. So our, our goal was then to introduce the vaccine. But to introduce it, we also then had to understand the disease burden. When you were starting your career out, yeah. how in the world did you pick this as your area of interest? Oh, I guess I was always interested in international medicine. Um, I somehow had this naive notion that, oh, maybe it'd be fun to be a teacher in a medical school overseas. So I did go into infectious diseases as a specialty. Uh, thinking that you know anybody who's interested in, in international health, that that would mean infectious diseases because we didn't think that gosh you could be involved with international health and be involved with ophthalmology or anesthesia or you know you can basically apply any specialty to international health and, and now in fact we're getting a bit involved in uh, colon cancer. Uh, as a as a new field, uh, so, but at that time, infectious disease seemed like the logical way to go. I guess I felt that in research you can amplify your impact. I read multiple times when I was reading about your work that you are a great mentor. I was wondering if you could tell me about what makes a great mentor-mentee relationship. You have to have respect both ways. I think most of my mentees, you would say, I, I tried to um, make sure that they become independent as quickly as possible. Allow them to make some mistakes along the way, uh, as we all do. Perhaps uh, show them a few tricks or 
at least explain what seemed to work for me as as I was going uh, in my career, but at the same time allow them to uh, to have their own their own path as at the same time. I read that you have written or been part of the authorship on over three hundred and fifty papers. Yeah. How did you balance that with your clinical work and with your research work? And do you have any advice for yeah. aspiring academic physicians? Um, teamwork. <laughs> yeah, I guess you you have to work in a team because obviously I didn't write those papers by myself, and I suppose many of those are uh, are from you know the mentor mentee relationship. Many of those, I think, too, are, are um, with in partnership not just with people here in our own university or with our own unit, but with with groups outside. Teamwork involves many people with different skills, and it's really a matter of putting those skills together to to uh, to, to come out with some important findings. I think that uh, you know you have to to look beyond yourself what you can accomplish as part of a team. I imagine one of the frustrating parts of your work has been getting grant monies. What has it been like to get those grants in order to make your work prosper? Yeah, it's uh, this is a horrible part of the <laughs> of the job. <laughs> Anybody who's involved with academic research, you know, they they complain. Uh, you know that if you try to get a funding from uh, National Institutes of Health, uh, it's you know your chances of being successful are probably no more than about ten percent. So you put in grant after grant, and uh, you have to learn how to not be too discouraged when you get turned down. Even the best uh, scientists are turned down frequently. So we were very fortunate to get this uh, substantial grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And using that, you can then build, you know, if you have a basis that allows you then to to have the, the you know, the information that, that you can then build to get an NIH grant and to get other grants, say, with UNICEF, and these work together. Uh, but, the, you know, it's hard to... Hard to explain. You can't just get a grant without that sort of networking and uh, and building from one grant to the next. You grew up in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about how you started in Portland as part of the UEB Church? Uh, EUB, EUB, Evangelical United Brethren. Uh huh. And then how you became involved with the Mennonite Church and the Brethren Church. Can you walk me through your faith story? Yeah. My father was a pastor in the EUB Church, the Evangelical United Brethren. They merged with the Methodists uh, in the early, probably the late 50s. I can't remember exactly the date. Uh, My parents didn't feel comfortable moving to the Methodist Church, and uh, he, he was a a seminary professor at the time at Western Evangelical Seminary. So we became acquainted with the Mennonites at that time. Later, during the Vietnam War, uh, Jane and I moved to Lame Deer, Montana, uh, on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, 
uh, as part of public health service uh, as opposed to uh, joining the military. Um, on the reservation, there was a, a Mennonite church that we became, we started going to. Uh, the pastor uh, was Joe Walksalong, um, a Cheyenne man, a very, a very uh, fine uh, Christian man. When we moved back to Baltimore, then um, I don't think there was a Mennonite church at that time. So we began uh, attending the uh, the uh, Brethren Church, the Long Green Valley Church of the Brethren. And actually, there's a link with the North Baltimore Church because members of that church actually helped to start the North Baltimore Church. How does your faith and your work intermingle? I think it just feels right that, um, you know, when you are uh, leading, you're trying to lead a Christian life, and, you, you know, it's awfully nice that your work fits together with your, uh, with your Christian goals. For me, it's very satisfying that, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to have two different lives. <laughs> I'm interested in the fact that your three brothers mm-hmm. are or were all doctors, right. and your uh-huh. sister a midwife, right. and uh-huh. your son is a doctor. What uh-huh. is it like to have so many doctors and healthcare professionals in your in your yeah. in your life? Yeah, I don't. I guess it's normal. <laughs> I was the I was the youngest of the of the four brothers, so uh, I think when I, I remember when I entered college, I had to fill out a form. Uh, what is my major going to be? And I couldn't think of what I was going to do. Other, you know, my three older brothers had gone into medicine, so I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I thought, well, okay, I'll put down pre-med. So, <laughs> so no, it, um, it. I guess it just it just felt right. And uh, how did you balance the competition and the encouragement? Oh, the with my brothers. Mm-hmm. Well, they were all much smarter than I was. Um, if you look at our GPAs in college, you'll see that you know I probably barely got in, but I had to work hard, and I guess that's uh, you know I guess that's a um, obviously I got a good enough GPA to get in, but uh, but I was certainly not summa cum laude. I guess I'm curious, and so that curiosity has has uh, been good. So maybe less important is that highest GPA and more important is the curiosity. I, I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Tell me about your partnership with your brother, Brad. Brad was my mentor. Uh, Brad was about eight, Brad was eight years older than I. He had, um, he had, I guess you'd say, you know, I really followed very closely in his footsteps. I tried not to, but... Um, when I uh, came to Johns Hopkins, he was already on the faculty and, and was doing research in cholera and, and other diarrheal diseases. Uh, he had worked in Calcutta, India earlier through, uh, through a Hopkins project uh, and had, had discovered one of the other important bacteria that caused uh, severe diarrhea, and it's called enterotoxigenic E. coli. Uh, so that was, you know, he had done that earlier and that was a brand new organism at the time that I started my fellowship. Of all your work over the past 40-some years? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. What would you say is the thing you're most proud of, if I can use the term proud? Yeah. Or what do you hold most dear to your heart? It's, it's, a, it's a tough uh, tough question. I guess, you know, it's, it's been working out that this development of the cholera vaccine and seeing uh, that it has, um, you know, after so many years, is finally starting to come to fruition. Thank you, Dr. Sack, uh-huh. for taking okay. some well, of your precious uh-huh. time to talk with me today. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us for our Menno HealthCast, brought to you by the Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship and the Mennonite Incorporated. To find out more about Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship, go to our website at mennohealth.org. Become a member today and like us on Facebook. For interested students and trainees, check out the student elective term, SET, grant program. Listen to our webinars that highlight previous SET experiences. Your financial support helps make possible this production, our webinars, student grants, and the annual gathering. Musical credits go to Paul Schlitz. Editing and production credits to Eugene Stevanis and Norm Sohar. And I'm your host, Joanne Huntsberger. Join us next time for our next episode of Menos in Medicine.